Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Evolve Medical Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to Diabetic Eye Disease Pipeline Therapies Part 2. I'm Christina Way. I'm going to be moderating today's discussion. We're going to be talking about two exciting areas in diabetic eye disease treatment, and those are high dose of Flibercept and gene therapy. And of note, this is the second part of a three-part series in diabetic eye disease, so don't forget to check out the first and third part, as well as the companion series on wet AMD. I want to take a moment to thank Evolve Medical Education for providing the CME webinar tonight. And without further ado, it is my great pleasure and honor to introduce my colleague and very good friend, Dr. Glenn Yu, who's an associate professor in the Department of Ophthalmology at UC Davis in Sacramento. Glenn, welcome. Thanks for being with us. How are you? Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So we're excited to speak with you today about two agents uh, or two areas, I should say. The first is high dose of Flibercept, and then the second is gene therapy, which really you're one of our field experts on. So we're super excited to learn from you. Uh, but before we get into that, I thought we might start off with a case. This is a real patient of yours that you've treated. Right. And I really think that this underscores a lot of the um, topics that we're going to discuss in the next uh, rest of the deck, because it really emphasizes that some patients either don't have a good response or don't have a complete response, even after trying multiple different therapies that are available today. And there's also a very heavy treatment burden associated with a lot of our current standard of care regimens. And so I'm going to let you take this away of the 66-year-old female physician. That part already scares me. With them. <laughs> <laughs> and she has DME in her right eye. She's had focal laser four years ago. Take us through this case, Glenn. Yeah, so as you mentioned, this is a, an actual patient of mine who's a six-year-old six female physician. And as you can see in the OCT image here, she has a good amount of macular edema. And as you can see, um, I started her on monthly at Flibercept. That usually is my go-to treatment for someone who is treatment-naive to anti-VEGF. Um, and um, after, you can see, we had a lot of OCT images here. Um, you can see that the aflibercept really wasn't getting the treatment response I wanted, which was resolution of the intracranial fluid. Now, uh, because she's a physician and she's read up on all the potential side effects, um, she was not intrigued by the idea of steroids. I had, you know, wanted to consider steroids. Actually, that was a question I wanted to ask you, Christina. What are your thoughts on introducing steroids on someone with aflibercept who's phakic? Yeah, you know, Glenn, that's a great question. I do like to incorporate steroids if I don't see a significant response within the first three to six anti-VEGF injections, especially if you're already using a Flibercept, which some consider perhaps the kind of best agent that we have currently for diabetic macular edema. But, you know, this is a complicated case because there looks like maybe there was a tractional or mechanical component as well, maybe very subtle. We all know that in diabetic patients, the hyaloid can be really adherent. So, um, you know, turning it back to you, did you start with a flipper set because of the visual acuity at 2050? Or is this a flipper set something that you start generally for all of your DME patients? That's a good question. Um, I start patients on a variety of medications. Usually if they're 2040 or worse, I would consider a flipper set as my first line. But if they're better than that, I sometimes will start with Lucentis, it's much lower cost, or Vastin, depending on the insurance. 
Um, but the question I had at this point was whether to, as you mentioned, there was a tractional component, there was a possible ERM. There was also the fact that she was phagic and she was one of those patients that kind of tried to dictate her own <laughs> management. And we, you know, she did not want to try anything beside anti-VEGF. She was worried about getting cataracts because of steroids. And she was worried about getting a cataract with a vitrectomy. So we even tried some micropulse lasers. There wasn't anything to focal. Now, Glenn, I noticed also that after several attempts with the aflibercept, you also used micropulse laser. And we've discussed this offline before. You're one of my few friends and colleagues who actually uses micropulse at this point. We don't have a lot of great data. How do you decide when to incorporate that into your treatment? In honesty, it, it, we, there's not that much strong data, and I don't really use it as my main uh, management tool. Um, I do find it's potentially useful for patients who particularly have good visual acuity, like 20, 20, 20, 25. As we know from the DRCR protocol V, patients with macular edema and good visual acuity could be monitored. But oftentimes I find that even though it's, you know, I'm tempted often to introduce an anti-VEGF, but I don't want to because of their good visual acuity, it's nice to give patients something to try to see if we can reduce the probability of them needing an injection. So I think that's usually the time when I introduce it um, with the knowledge and it kind, of, it kind of gives you an opportunity to kind of brief them of about the possibility of anti-VEGF if it doesn't uh, work. Um, there are some anecdotal evidence that micropulse laser can reduce treatment burden in patients who are getting anti-VEGF, um, but the data, as you mentioned, is not very strong at this point. And then going back to the first question, you know, about her being phagic, diabetic patients tend to develop cataracts at a faster rate anyway. She's already 66. Did you bring that up into the conversation when you were proposing all of the different modalities that we do have, since steroids do work quite well for a lot of DME patients? Yeah, honestly, that was the first thing I tried to push after, you know, usually if a flibercept, if it's an incomplete response, I'm okay waiting a few more injections to see if they'll respond later on. But here we almost see zero response after monthly injections. And that really suggests that there's a different mechanism from a pathophysiologic standpoint. So I brought the concept of steroids up way very early. I mentioned that cataracts is a known uh, potential risk um, and that it's a very safe procedure that she probably will need shortly afterwards anyway. Uh, but she was someone who was very adamant um, to avoid that. Uh, here we're continuing now. I actually didn't, didn't manage to convince her to at least try a subtenons catalog, which in my experience is not as good for diabetic macular edema as intravitreal agents like triessins um, or an Ozerdex um, or dexamethasone implant. Um, however, I just wanted to give it a try. And as you can see, even afterwards and continued flibercept injection, we do see maybe a hint of a little bit of reduction of edema over time, but it's still not uh, optimal and her visual acuity really remained the same. So here we continue to see that her, uh, her aflibercept is turning away <laughs> very, very slowly at the macular edema. And it actually looks a little bit better at this point, uh, but her visual acuity is getting worse because as you <laughs> predicted, Christina, that her cataracts is gonna worsen anyway, even without introduction of steroids. And, and this is frustrating sometimes because you know that the cataracts are going to progress whether you use steroids or not. And, you know, as someone who does incorporate steroids, a lot of times we do see that de develop faster. And I think what can be frustrating in these patients who are more refractory to treatment is that their vision can actually go down while their OCT is slowly getting better, like in this case. 
And they lose that motivation, Glenn. I don't know if that's been your experience too. They sometimes get really frustrated about why they have to continue coming in every month for these injections when their vision is actually not improving. So you almost have to give them the long-term horizon outlook for saying, hey, you got to stay with this. Eventually we'll get those cataracts out and then the vision will finally hopefully improve. Yeah, I completely agree. It's all about the long game. So at this point, she finally agrees to undergoing cataract surgery. So she had phacal emulsification. And lo and behold, her visual acuity improves to 2060, but her macular edema got worse. When in these cases, Christina, do you feel that this is just worsening of the diabetic macular edema? Or do you think that there's some element of pseudophagic CME in there? And do you treat these differently? Yeah, I've seen this enough times that I truly believed it's probably it's a mixed mechanism. So I think there's probably a component of Irvine gas that we're seeing. But I do sometimes think that the DME can also worsen because we know that DME, at least in part, is based on inflammation in terms of its pathogenesis. And so in terms of how to manage this, I think you did so perfectly. That's how I would have done it. Dexamethasone works fabulously in this perioperative period because it sort of hits two birds with one stone, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what we did. You can see that uh, her visual acuity starts to um, improve after the dexamethasone implant, as well as the macular edema. And her visual acuity is down to 2040 um, at that visit. So, um, so this is actually a really good segue, I think, to the, the um, treatments that we're going to discuss today, mainly because it shows a patient who, you know, I think a flibercep, as you consider it, is pretty much our, our kind of top mainline treatment for anti-VEGF therapy for diabetics. And unfortunately, it still has that durability issue and efficacy issue in some cases. So here we have a patient that is responding to a flibercep, but not completely. Um, and she needed these, you know, ancillary treatment, the micropulse, the dexamethasone implant. And even then she has it very, very frequently. Um, so why don't we talk about some upcoming therapies for um, including the use of high dose of flibercep as well as gene therapy. So um, we all have used a flibercep and it's a tried and true agent, but one of the questions is, can it last longer? Is there a longer lasting version of, flib of flibercep? Now that's one of the promises of prolocizumab, which when it came out had the essentially the equivalent molar ratio of about tenfold of the flibercept and about 20-fold for lucentis. And the question is whether brolocizumab would have um, had that effect. And we really didn't see that effect. And there were also some questions about these occlusive vasculitides. Um, and as a result, um, one of the response, I guess, from the makers of flibercept is to try to see if we can do just a higher dose of flibercept since we know that it's a tried and true drug. And maybe we just need to have higher durability. Now, many of you uh, among the audience may recognize this is a fourfold higher dose, which is very reminiscent of the Harbor study back in the days for uh, ranibizumab, where two milligrams of ranibizumab versus 0.5 milligrams of ranibizumab didn't seem to show much of a significant difference. So I had my skepticism when I looked at this concept. But here, notice that the difference is that back in the Harbor study, they were really going for superiority. They were looking to see if they can improve visual acuity, and that was their, their, um, their goal. Whereas here, the, the goal is durability. And you can see from the uh, study design that it's eight milligrams versus two milligrams in patients. Now, the phase two study looked only at neovascular AMD patients, not diabetics, uh, but they gave three monthly doses, and then they switched to quarterly dosing every 12 weeks. And at the end of the phase two study, it showed that there was a higher proportion of patients who had no fluid 
in the eight milligrams arm versus the two milligrams arm. And that really, really uh, um, gave the impetus to move on to a phase two, three study called the photon study to look at diabetics. Here, the study is looking at eight milligrams versus two milligrams of flibercept in 660 diabetic macular edema patients, where they're gonna get three monthly loading doses, followed by either every 12 week or every 16 week dosing. And the results are still ongoing from this study. Yeah, no, I appreciate that summary. You know, I think that phase two proof of concept study also has fueled the pivotal phase three for called Pulsar, which is also being looked at for neovascular AMD. So we don't have results from this yet, but so far, based on that proof of concept study, the phase two in neovascular AMD, there does seem to maybe be promise. Um, any concerns, Glenn? I mean, you know, it's it's one of those situations where it's a drug that we're all familiar with, but we're not necessarily familiar with using it at this dose. Yeah, Thoughts on that? Um, I have less of a concern for this as I do with some other agents, mainly because I think, you know, initially when the Flibercep came out, there were some concerns about uh, intraocular inflammation. Uh, but that turned out to be primarily, you know, something about the manufacturing process and the impurities that really, I think Regeneron has done a good job on trying to clean up their product. And since then, I've personally, from personal experience and also from uh, reading, uh, from hearing from other colleagues, I think there's very, very little evidence of intraocular inflammation associated with the flibercept. And I think going up on four times the dose, really, we, you know, I, I really don't expect that to be a concern. Now, the question is whether uh, why we're seeing inflammation in a, a product like Rolosuzumab, which is almost like a 10x of Flippercept. Um, but I do think that the mechanism of action might be very different. And that also is you know, much higher. That's tenfold, where we're here, we're talking about fourfold dosing um, issue. So I think unlike another, a, a separate product that might have separate uh, um, mechanisms for causing inflammation, as well as much higher doses, I'm not as concerned with the fourfold um, dose with the flippercept eight milligrams. Well, I think if we could get out to quarterly or even Q16 week dosing, it would also make it a very competitive agent with what the landscape might look like in five years where we have new agents coming out that can potentially also last that long. And the familiarity and the safety track record of, of a flippercept may be very appealing for some people if we can sort of match or balance out that durability. So thanks so much for that. And then the other application of a flippercept, I think it's really interesting in diabetic eye disease that everyone's talking about right now is in the treatment of NPDR, something that we haven't classically treated at this point, but there have been two stu big studies that have read out over the past year, year and a half, uh, Panorama and Protocol W. With some subtle differences, Panorama looked at 47 to 53, DRCR Protocol W looked at 43 to 53, and there were some differences in terms of their primary outcomes. So just brief us on this and, and sh share your thoughts if you would. Yeah, thanks, Christina. So um, certainly, we're all familiar with using uh, flibercept for diabetic macular edema. And as you know from protocol S, um, we also are extending the use of a flibercept for proliferative diabetic retinopathy or PDR. But what about NPDR? And so the Panorama and the DRCR protocol W studies were two studies that really looked at this question, both using a flibercept um, as their uh, agent of choice. 
So the Panorama study was a phase three study that looked at 402 patients with moderate to severe NPDR without diabetic macular edema. And that's important because we already are treating patients with diabetic macular edema. We know that by definition, many of, their patient, many of these patients will show improvement in diabetic retinopathy severity scale. So this is really looking at the agent as monotherapy specifically for patients with diabetes or diabetic retinopathy without macular edema. And here we're looking at, um, the, the team is looking at two milligrams of Flibercept every eight weeks versus two milligrams every 16 weeks uh, compared with sham. And to look at the uh, pa proportion of patients that had a two-step improvement in diabetic retinopathy severity scale. And you can see the results show that 80% versus 65% versus 15%. So 15% was the sham arm. So we're seeing at least a four to five fold improvement in the reduction of DRB uh, in the diabetic retinopathy severity scale. Now, some people have criticized the fact that while well, the diabetic retinopathy severity scale is just kind of a cosmetic appearance of what the retina looks like, it might not necessarily reflect the degree of uh, of ischemia, if you were to look at wide field angiography. And really, is that what we're looking for? Is the main outcome diabetic retinopathy severity, or is it actual vision loss related to things like macular edema and proliferative diabetic retinopathy? So that really was what the DRCR protocol W was meant to look at. It's a very similar size study. It's about 328 patients with moderate to severe NPDR without diabetic macular edema again. This time, rather than every 16 or every 12, uh, every eight week, um, they're doing a flibercept every four weeks compared to sham. And the results show that there was a three-fold reduction in diabetic macular edema, as well as a two-fold reduction in proliferative diabetic, retina, retina, um, diabetic retinopathy. So in a way, the protocol W was really looking at prevention of these uh, more advanced features of diabetic retinopathy versus just improvement in diabetic retinopathy severity scale. Yeah, yeah, great summary. And just to clarify for protocol W, patients were treated every four months or every 16 weeks. And you're right, they're trying to prevent vision-threatening complications, which were defined as diabetic macular edema and proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So I think what we learned, Glenn, from both of these is that you know, like we know from post hoc analyses from our older studies in DME, we know that these uh, anti-VEGF agents in these specific cases of Flibercept can be effective in lowering the DRSS scores and preventing some of these vision-threatening complications. But like you said, both of them did not show, at least at their readout at primary endpoints, end there was no difference in visual acuity. And that's what we're all looking for. And the question really becomes, do you think that's eventually going to manifest itself? Do you think it's just too short of a time period that we're not seeing it? Because at the end of the day, that's what you care about. That's what I care about. That's what our patients care about. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I, I do think that ultimately it would manifest itself in visual acuity, but it would have to be a longer term study and a much larger study. Um, the question I think is at what point do you initiate anti-VEGF therapy for a patient with diabetic retinopathy, because as we all know, diabetes is a disease that's systemically manifested, right? So there are patients who might come in with maybe some moderate NPDR that has an A1C that's improving rapidly because they just came under a PCP's, uh, you know, primary care physician's uh, management. So sometimes the trajectory is not always in the in the bad direction, and so. If we think that, you know, obviously anti-VEGF therapy might be useful, but the question is, in those patients, is it worthwhile to do these injections? 
um, especially doing it every quarterly or every two months, if they potentially would get better on their own. Yeah, that's a great point. And just to add to that, you know, not just when to start it, but also what are we treating to? What's the end point as well? <laughs> when to stop. Right? When to stop. And what would happen with treatment interruptions? I mean, I think there's a lot of different questions that still remain, but I think it's exciting. And, you know, with our longer durability agents and some of the other technologies like port delivery system, maybe, or gene therapy, even which we're going to talk about shortly, maybe treatment of NPDR truly will become integrated in our algorithm in the future. We'll see. I want to move on uh, to gene therapy. We're going to talk about two agents, ADVM022 and uh, RGX314. And you are really a leader in our field when it comes to gene therapy. So I'm excited to learn from you. Let's start off with ADVM022. This was a little bit of a disappointment and a little bit of a shocker with the infinity trial, which has been halted. Uh, this indication for, for um, DME is no longer being pursued by Adverum. Uh, tell us why. Tell us what we found in the phase two study. Yeah, so just for the audience as an introduction, gene therapy is a very novel and very exciting concept to me. Rather than trying to give an injection of a drug or medication, the concept with gene therapy is to inject a virus, to deliver a virus, to infect your cells so that your cells are going to be the ones making the, the, the drugs themselves. So theoretically, the cells in your body will be producing this drug and the effect could be potentially uh, permanent. And in the Infinity study, we're looking at a product called ADVM022, which involves injection of this type of like a virus. It's often an adeno-associated virus or an AAV into the eye through an intravitreal injection, very similar to what we usually do um, on a day-to-day -day basis for, for medications. Now, if you remember the the advent of the, the new uh, gene therapy that was first FDA approved is that for RPE65, and that involves a subretinal injections. And in fact, most gene therapies usually involve subretinal injections, which, as you know, is very complicated, requires vitreal retinal surgery. And so the advantage of an intravitreal injection of a virus is that it could potentially be a lot easier to do and something that patients like those who are receiving injections for DME are very familiar with. However, most viruses can't, actually, you can't just inject most AAV into the vitreous cavity and expect it to work because it actually AAVs are prevented from entering the retina due to the internal limiting membrane. And what's interesting about this ADVM022 product is that it uses an AAV serotype that is specifically engineered to penetrate the internal limiting membrane and enter the retina. So it's a very exciting concept. It's a new generation of AAV. And in this study, they tested, it's a phase two study where they looked at 36 patients with DME and gave them at two doses. And these are usually uh, in viral genomes per eye or vector genomes per eye, 6E11 versus 2E11 at two different doses. And they looked at, and they gave these patients either topical and or oral steroids as prophylaxis. However, in this study, they found that uh, in the higher dose arm, one patient actually under, um, underwent hypotony with uh, uveitis that occurred around 30 weeks after the treatment. And because of this and a number of other cases where patients were showing evidence of hypotony, um, the study uh, uh, organizers decided to terminate the study. Um, now, there is a uh, parallel study that's ongoing that's a phase two study called the OPTIC trial, which is actually uh, looking at patients with neovascular AMD. And interestingly, they have not seen the same level of hypotony or uveitis seen even at the higher dose in that other study. So it really lends itself to a question of 
First of all, is gene therapy safe? Um, if it's unsafe, is it because of the viral vector or could it be the underlying disease? Here we see that discrepancy between those with DME versus neovascular AMD um, and what it really means for the future of intravitreal gene therapy. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, while this was disappointing to see, I think it really gave us a lot of information. This field is still very much in its infancy. And it reminds us that we need to be, you know, eyes wide open for all of these safety signals that can emerge, especially this appears to be a dose limiting type of toxicity of some sort, or dose limiting effect, I should say. But, you know, it's interesting because the pivotal studies for neovascular AMD are moving forward. And at least the results from the infinity study did inform sort of the dose choice in that study. They're going to straddle the lower dose. So it's going to be one E11 and three E11 in the neovascular AMD pivotal study. So I think that's at least important information that we gained. And of course, we'll have to see how those patients do and watch them very closely. But what's really tricky too, Glenn, about these studies is that they're small numbers. These are not the thousands of patients that we're used to in our studies, right? With gene therapy, they generally are two-digit numbers. So it's hard to know, is it just specific to DME patients that we were seeing this? Or is it just because we don't have enough patients overall that we're not seeing it manifest in necessarily the neovascular AMD study? Um, so we will learn more. I think it's uh, very interesting. And thank you for that summary. I want to also move us forward now to our GX314. This is the other leading candidate in the gene therapy space, and it's being studied superchoroidally, actually, for DME, which is exciting. Tell us a little bit about the altitude phase two trial. Yeah, thanks, Christina. As you know, you know, as I mentioned earlier, gene therapies usually involves delivering a virus, often either subretinally or intravitreally. So what is this whole concept of superchoroidal viral delivery? I think one of the uh, uh, Interesting thing about RGX314 is that that's based on a regular, it's actually an AAV8 virus, which does not have the ability to be given intravitrally and to penetrate the retina the same way the other product does. And because of that, the original RGX314 studies involved subretinal injections. But I think one of the things about, as I mentioned, many of our patients are so used to intravitreal injection. If you were to introduce the concept of them going to the OR to get a subretinal injection, I think that that would be potentially a, a, a difficult to, to tolerate. So the, the concept of superchoroidal uh, delivery is to use a microneedle, a very, very short needle, less than a millimeter, that can be done in the clinic just like an intravitreal injection. But rather than penetrating the entire wall of the eye into the vitreous cavity, it just penetrates just deep enough to pass the sclera into the superchoroidal space. Now, a superchoroidal injection is very, very different. Unlike an intravitreal injection where you just kind of put it in and you inject here, you're kind of feeling, there's a lot of feeling and pushing to try to feel that uh, potential space. And you're trying to inject this volume of fluid into that potential space. Now, research from our lab, as well as many other groups, have demonstrated that you can inject virus into that space, and it will infect some cells um, with, F, uh, with a wide distribution inside the eye effectively. Um, so in this study, they're looking at 40 patients with non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy or proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So these are NPDR, PDR patients without macular edema. And they're looking at two doses of this RGX314 AAV8 virus um, and trying to see if there's any benefit in diabetic retinopathy severity scale or DRSS. Um, and it's very similar to, they have other studies, again, also with neovascular AMD, uh, looking at both subretinal and supercorridal RGX314. So it'll be interesting to see what this alternative mode of delivery will bring us. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I have a question, Glenn, because I know you do a lot of work in the suprachoroidal space in this in this area. But, you know, we that people often talk about how the subretinal space is relatively immune privileged. And that's why, at least overall in the studies we've seen so far, it seems like there's less of an inflammatory or immunogenic response when you deliver a gene therapy into the subretinal space versus intravitreal, which we also have had historical, you know, failures, um, drug candidates that have been tried that caused a lot of inflammation in the eye. So where does suprachoroidal fall on that? Is it somewhere in between or what, what, what can we expect in terms of the safety? What should we be looking out for? Yeah, that's a good point. I think it depends on the product of what you're injecting. Um, as you mentioned and summarized very nicely, intravitreal AUV tend to cause more inflammation. And the, and the hypothesis is that a lot of the virus actually leaks out. As we know, even anti-VEGF therapy, when you inject into one eye, a little bit of it potentially could get into the other eye and has a beneficial effect. So in the same way, an AUV in, injected into the vitreous cavity can get into the circulation and potentially cause some in host immune responses to the viral vector. What's interesting about the suprachoroidal space um, is that similar to a subretinal injection, the virus get trapped inside the eye and we don't see much of it escaping the eye. So in a way it is better than intravitreal injections in that way. But what's interesting that in, from our own research studies is that a lot of the virus starts to infect cells in the sclera and it causes the sclera to express a lot of the proteins. And what's interesting about that is that depending on the protein, so in our you know, monkey studies, we're, we're expressing GFP or green fluorescent protein, which is clearly foreign to humans or monkeys. And that triggered quite a lot of inflammation to not the vector, the viral vector, but the transgene, whatever you're trying to produce. Now here, I'm not too worried uh, as much uh, as worried about that because RGX314 is not making some weird foreign protein. It's making a humanized uh, protein that targets VEGF, and it's a protein that obviously we're getting a lot of, you know, patients are already getting anti-VEGF injections. Uh, but it does mean that the suprachoroidal delivery route could be meant for only specific types of transgenes and not things like, let's say, these newer uh, CRISPR gene editing tools, which are bacterial, or even some optogenetic tools, which are uh, actuators, which are also uh, foreign-derived. Uh, foreign Thank you so much. I appreciate that summary. And, you know, just kind of last question as we wrap this up, thinking about, you talked about two different classes of upcoming investigational therapeutics for the treatment of diabetic eye disease. One is high dose of Flibercept. The other are these gene therapies. Just broadly speaking, you know, let's say that these continue to show good efficacy and safety and do become available. What types of patients do you think you might use these types of products on? My, my feeling about these two products is that we're looking at very different timelines. I think that a Flibercept is probably going to look good earlier on. I think that in the next two to three years, our durability uh, threshold will be uh, higher. Like we want to have drugs that at least last three to four months. And I think a Flibercept at high dose will be a good contender for that. I think gene therapy still walks, walks a very tenuous road. We're still at much earlier phase studies. We're People are just starting to understand the potential, you know, uveitis associated with gene therapies and where to approach that. And also we're looking at drugs that uh, a therapy that potentially is a cure. It could last forever. And for some patients, we might not want permanent anti-VEGF uh, um, suppression. And so I think the type of patients I think would benefit from gene therapy are probably smaller 
um, are maybe patients who are, we know for sure will have a high treatment burden for a very, very long time. Um, and that's something I think we'll have to kind of take our time to truly understand where they will play in our uh, armamentarium of treatments. Well, thank you so much, Glenn. I always learn a ton from you. We appreciate you covering uh, two of the great, you know, investigational areas that are being developed here in diabetic eye disease. So we appreciate you joining us today. And I want to take a moment also just to thank, again, Evolve Medical Education for providing this CME webinar. They have also a lot of other excellent educational content. So be sure to check that out on the website. Thanks again, Glenn. And until next time. Sure. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Evolve Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.